You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope everyone has a great 2022, except for you, Betty White. No 2022 for you, which is sad for us because everyone loved you and we are all going to miss you. Okay, despite the fact that it is a brand new year, there are people out there shitting the bed in the same old ways or shitting themselves in the same old ways in the case of Rutledge Diaz IV. You may remember that name, and if you do, you have a better memory for names than I do. He was the Louisiana man who made the news in 2019, made a splash or a sploosh, also made the top of my podcast, after he hired a woman or women to take care of his disabled brother and change his disabled brother's diapers, only there was no brother, disabled or otherwise, although there were diapers. Diaz himself was wearing them. He was arrested and charged with sex trafficking, amongst other things, because he asked the women he hired to help him find other women who might want to babysit for his brother and change his brother's diapers. Again, the brother didn't exist, but the diapers did. Diaz was wearing them. Well, poops, he did it again. Sorry about that. Couldn't resist. Diaz was arrested last week for the same shit. Different year. Hiring women to change his diapers under false pretenses and asking those women to help him find other women to change his diapers under the same false pretenses. It is a sad and weird story. But there's a lesson in it for us, if we care to see it, about how little home health care workers are paid compared to sex workers. A home health care worker changing your diapers, minimum wage. A sex worker changing your diapers, hundreds of dollars an hour plus tip. And people wonder why some women and some men choose sex work. Anyway, Diaz has always been too cheap to honestly hire actual sex workers and too dumb, apparently, to learn his lesson the first time he was arrested for dishonestly hiring home health care workers. Another person who made the news, shitting the bed in a very predictable fashion, just as 2021 was coming to an end, Jeffrey McCall. If you saw the excellent documentary Pray Away the Gay on Netflix about the collapse of the conversion therapy movement, that's the ex-gay movement funded and pushed by evangelical Christians, you'll remember McCall. He was the ex-gay guy who stepped up to start a new ex-gay organization and lead ex-gay marches of dozens of people in Washington, D.C., after the leaders of Exodus International, which was the biggest and oldest ex-gay organization, after those people, the founders, leaders of Exodus International, admitted that praying away the gay didn't work, had never worked, and it harmed the people who tried. They admitted all of that and shut themselves down. Well, after Exodus shut down, Jeffrey McCall started a new organization and tried to revive the movement, In addition to being ex-gay, McCall also claimed to be ex-trans, so Jesus saved him from being a gay man and a straight woman at the same time, I guess. It's kind of confusing. Anyway, here's Jeffrey McCall himself being interviewed on the Christian Broadcast Network about how it all went down. I thought, maybe I'll just give God a chance. He did speak to me and said I was going to live for him. And that summer, the Lord and I began to try to have a relationship. All right, so he's America's most prominent ex-gay man, the leader of what's left of the ex-gay movement, a darling of the religious right, frequent guest on Christian TV shows and podcasts, 
paid to speak at Christian conferences. There are a million videos of him online giving testimony in fundamentalist churches about his relationship with Jesus and how that relationship with Jesus saved him and cured him. And you know where this is going, right? Turns out McCall and Jesus, that relationship they have, apparently it's an open one. Because McCall, like all ex-gay leaders in the past, McCall was out there fucking men, lots of men. In a move that looked like he was trying to get ahead of perhaps a coming expose, McCall, who identifies as a former homosexual, which is long for ex-gay, posted a statement. McCall posted a statement to Facebook confessing to, you'll never guess. Let's just say McCall didn't announce that he'd created a carbon capture technology that's going to save the world. No, he captured dick. Lots of dick. The trouble began for McCall, as he wrote in his statement, when he gave his heart away to a straight guy he was only trying to help. Quote, after denying what I wanted with him, I then went on to fall sexually with a man. This fall led to multiple falls with multiple men. The statement goes on and on and on. McCall pulls the dick out of his mouth long enough to claim and insist that he is still ex-gay and ends with, I am just a peasant who tried to help save people's eternal lives and point them to Jesus all while going through my own process. A process that apparently involves sucking a lot of dick, a whole lot of dick. A process I could get behind or in front of or on my knees for. But honestly, after reading McCall's statement, I'm kind of pissed. How is this guy getting more dick than I am? Now, I stick to the regular dick I've got in my life. I'm not out there prowling rest stops or evangelical fundamentalist Christian church mixers. And I've always been a quality over quantity guy when it comes to dick. And I just think the quality of the dick I'm getting is probably better than the quality of the dick McCall was getting. But just on principle, it seems to me that the leader of what's left of the X-Game movement shouldn't be getting more dick than I am. I would say he shouldn't be getting any dick, but if we've learned anything about the leaders of ex-gay organizations over the years, those guys always are getting plenty of dick because they're always getting caught. They're always getting in trouble for it, always getting caught with dicks in their mouths, dicks plural. So it's not like I expected McCall was getting no dick. I just didn't expect him to be getting all the dick. So, you know, whoever's in charge of dick rations here in the simulation we're all currently living in, I'd like to speak to your manager. McCall will ultimately be replaced. He'll resign in disgrace. And like every other ex-gay leader interviewed in Pray Away the Gay, I fully expect that McCall will come out as ex-ex-gay someday. Because they all learn eventually that you can't pray away the gay. But it seems like you can fuck away the ex-gay. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro and magnum editions of the Savage Lovecast, Leah Carey from the Good Girls Talk About Sex podcast joins me to talk about newly fat bodies and the impact those newly fat bodies can have on our long-term relationships. And on the magnum Savage Lovecast, James McKay joins me to talk about his study of hypnosis porn. All that coming up on the show. And coming up this Thursday... We do a monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum subscribers to the Savage Lovecast on the first Thursday of every month. Usually we call it Sack Lunch. This one we're calling Happy Sack because we're doing it at happy hour, 6 p.m. Well, happy hour for me, 6 p.m. Pacific time, happy hour for everybody on the West Coast, 9 p.m. 
Eastern time. If you'd like to join me and my Magnum subs for this hangout, go to savage.love and become a Magnum subscriber now. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at rescue. I'm a 20-year-old woman living in Texas, and earlier this year, I decided to get my tubes taken out, and it was the best decision I could ever have. But seeing that I'm single and have no kids, I've been trying to rack my brain on how to figure out how to roll it out to prospective partners. Because it's not that I don't want kids, it's just that I don't want kids coming from me. And the few people that I've told so far have reacted not in the greatest. And so i just wondering if you could possibly give me ideas or something that I could possibly put on, like, whenever I decide to go back on dating apps. Because I want it to be known that, like, I don't hate kids, I just don't want any from me. So I had an interesting email exchange recently or DM exchange on Instagram recently with a guy who was frustrated because he was having a hard time finding a male partner. He's a gay guy, finding the right guy for him. And this guy is a wannabe cuckold. So he wants to find a guy who will sleep with other men, be his committed partner, be his husband, but cheat on him and rub his nose in it. And it sounds like a bit of a reach. It probably isn't apparent right now how this connects to your question and your problem. Uh, but bear with me for a second. I got into a little back and forth with him uh, on Instagram. And it turned out that he was blurting this out or he was sharing this thing about himself, about his desires, about the kind of relationship he would like to have on the first date right away. And that can be a good strategy, but it can also be off-putting. You know, he was leading with it. And maybe he needed to get to know somebody a little bit better before he put that out there. It was entirely possible that he was, you know, on a first date with a guy who might be up for that kind of relationship, might like to have a one-sided open relationship, might be able to wrap his head around being a hot husband or having a cuckold sub for a long-term partner, but was just thrown by the fact that the guy was leading with this. You know, when it comes to uh, a quick aside about kink, I'll get to your question, I promise, very soon, very soon. You know, if you meet somebody on a kink app, you establish sexual compatibility, and then you move on to see if you can establish, you know, emotional compatibility. When you meet somebody just on a dating app, you establish emotional compatibility first. You go on a few dates, see if you like each other, and then you try to establish sexual compatibility. And that's what I told that guy he needed to do. Meeting on kink apps lead with the cuckolding. Meeting on regular dating apps or through Grindr or through friends. Yeah, wait to lay your kink cards on the table. Now, I'm not comparing your decision to get your tubes tied at 20 and to not ever want to have and really foreclose the possibility of ever having, without a major intervention, your own biological children to a kink. But maybe this is something that you should let somebody get to know you a little bit before you throw out there. It seems to me that leading with this, putting this on your dating apps, um, making this the sole topic of conversation on a first date is to get out over your skis in a way that might be off-putting even to a guy who doesn't want kids of his own either or doesn't ever want to have kids. So my advice to you would be to not include language about this on your dating apps. My advice to you would be not to bring this up necessarily. You're only 20 years old. Most of the guys you meet are not going to be in any rush if they're in your age demo to have kids. But wait a little bit. Let that conversation happen naturally. Don't make this 
what you lead with or the most important or salient thing about you. Establish a basic kind of fundamental bedrock, emotional compatibility, perhaps sexual compatibility. And then if, you know, the relationship looks like it's going to go places or you're going to date or possibly commit, then you have those conversations about what the future would look like. Then you have conversations about kids, about marriage, about where you want to live. Then, and that communicates to somebody that you have good judgment, which is one of my hobby horses that I'm constantly riding around on this podcast. It demonstrates to somebody that you have the kind of emotional intelligence that people look for in partners, that these kinds of conversations about kids and the future and marriage and work and where you want to live and politics, that that's not for the first 10 minutes. That's not necessarily something you need to or should put on a dating app. That's something that you talk about with somebody as you're getting closer and you're doing that sorting, sifting, and vetting that people do when they date. So my advice to the wannabe gay cuckold on Instagram, hold off, be patient, roll that out at a more appropriate time once you've established emotional compatibility. Similar to my advice to you, wait until you've established emotional compatibility. Wait until you're interested enough in a guy to be thinking about a future with him to start having those conversations about what that future would include and, in the case of kids or your own biological children, would not include. Hi, Dan. I'm a 43-year-old woman from Long Island, New York. I am bisexual. I am in an open relationship for the past seven years. I've recently been through something that I can only classify as trauma because that's how it feels, and I was hoping to get some advice on how to get past it. My boyfriend and I met on a website for kinky people. It is not a dating app, more like a social media type of page. I was closeted for the large portion of my adult life, including through a marriage that was basically sexless. And then finally, I found this site and had an awakening and was able to express myself with pictures and through writings and through sharing with a community that I felt a part of. I met my boyfriend there. We have met other people on the site and have played together, played separately. Overall, it's really been a big part of my life. It's been a big part of our relationship. And it was something and some place that I always felt safe. Recently, my boyfriend had sent a message to somebody and unfortunately, it turned out to be a catfish situation. And this person screenshot images from my page, not suitable for work images, and tried to extort us. Found us on regular social media, sent threatening messages that they wanted money, and actually sent a photo, a screenshot of a photo of me giving my boyfriend a blowjob to a family member of mine, to my brother. It was very traumatizing. We contacted the police, we contacted the site, there really wasn't much anybody could do. And in the end, we deactivated our pages. I feel so violated. I feel like someplace that I thought was safe turned out not to be. It's made me question all of my own judgment in terms of posting any photos there, in terms of feeling safe. I feel stupid that I felt safe there. It's made me question 
my boyfriend's choices? How could he trust this person? You know, they exchanged a few messages and then he cut the conversation off because he felt like something was weird. But at that point, the damage had sort of already been done. I don't know how to move past it. I feel like anything kink related right now feels upsetting to me. And at the same time, I'm angry that this was taken away from me. I'm not really sure what to do. Was hoping you had some advice. First, I want to affirm your feelings. You feel violated because you were violated. What this person did was brutal and horrible and a reminder that there are shitty people everywhere. There are shitty people in every place you've ever been where you felt safe or feel safe. I remember the first time I walked into a gay bar, Bushes on Halstead in Chicago uh, with the first guy I was ever kind of dating or serious about, my first boyfriend. I was still a teenager. And passing through the doors into this bar felt like going through some kind of airlock where suddenly all this pressure that I felt every second of every day was lifted from my shoulders. And I'd been living under that sort of oppressive, you know, heterosexist horseshit for so long that it was, it, it just felt normal. I wasn't even aware of the pressure until I walked into this gay bar and I was surrounded by other gay men in a gay space. And I felt so free. It felt like for me, like a safe space. And then a few years later, not long after that, a friend went to a gay bar and met a guy and went home with him, something I had done in gay bars where I felt safe, and was murdered by the guy he went home with. And that was, for me, a reminder that there are shitty people everywhere, including shitty people in the gay bars where I had felt safe in the past. So what did you learn? You learned something that you kind of, I'm not blaming you, I'm not faulting you, I'm not shaming you at all. You learned something or were reminded of something that you kind of already knew or should have known that there are shitty, untrustworthy people everywhere. And some of them are out there trawling personal sites, you know, FetLife Recon, uh, people's DMs on Instagram. They're everywhere, some shitty people who are catfishing and attempting to blackmail people for flirting the way people flirt these days, which is often by swapping dirty photographs, personal photographs. And people can wind up feeling so safe on a particular website or in a particular space that they swap these dirty photographs with people that they don't know. And for the most part, that doesn't end badly. For the most part, that's how people make new sex friends and sometimes meet people that they end up in relationships with, loving and long-term relationships with. And the risks of encountering a shitty person, you know, in a gay bar or on a dating app are worth the potential rewards of having great sex with somebody that you like or winding up in a long-term relationship or a short-term, a short-term successful relationship with someone whose company and genitals you really enjoy. So I, I just want you to put this in perspective. Yes, it's horrible what this person did to you. You might want to reassess the kind of photographs that you share with people that you don't know or that you post publicly because this is a thing that can happen. You can be catfished. Someone can connect you to your other social media, find your family members, and then threaten you, threaten, you know, extort you for money. Uh, otherwise, they're going to take this shit to your employers or your family members. And oh my God, it is a terrible thing. And it happened to you and I am so sorry. So, so what do you do? 
I didn't let the person who murdered my friend prevent me from going to or enjoying gay bars ever again. It did become something that I thought about, not that I'm murder shaming my friend who got murdered. I'm sure he was careful and conscientious about the people he went home with too. But it was something I thought about when I went to gay bars was, you know, not everybody you meet is a good guy just because he's in a gay bar. And you need now, as you get back on this space to know that not everyone who can access your images that you post publicly and not everyone that you wind up talking to is going to be a good person. One of them might be a reputational murderer, someone who wants to, you know, send these kinds of pictures to your brother if you don't send them money. Now, I think you should get back on that website. That person who attempted to extort you already has your pictures. That cow is already out of the barn. All you're doing by not being on that website where you made connections in the past that you enjoyed and met people who were good and decent people that you and your boyfriend enjoyed spending time with, all you're doing by not getting back on that website is preventing yourself from having those good experiences, good connections in the future without in any way decreasing the risk that this person who already has your photos might come after you again. So remind yourself that we live at a time and we live in a world where almost everyone has shared these kinds of photographs and almost everyone, I think under 40 or 50, has shared these kinds of photographs with strangers. And for the most part, they didn't suffer any reputational consequences, no blowback, no extortion attempts. For the most part, it goes well. But I think these days people have more sympathy, more empathy for those whose photos wind up being weaponized in the way your photos were weaponized because everyone looks at that now Hopefully everyone looks at that now and thinks, well, there but for the grace of God go I. There but for, you know, a chance encounter with a catfishing, blackmailing asshole go I. So don't feel like you're being judged. Don't feel like you did anything wrong. Something wrong was done to you. All right, now I'm going to play a call from somebody who just went through what you're going through. Hello, Dan and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. African-American bisexual male here in the land of Texas, shitty-ass fucking Texas, where abortions are illegal. But yes, I do have abortion pills just in case any of my friends or their daughters need one. No problem here that I can tell, but I do want to share a story with your listeners about recently being catfished. I was on an app that is used for meeting, greeting, and other things sexual. As you put it, these things are just bars in your pocket. So I went to the bar in my pocket instead of going to a real one. I was able to mutually connect with the woman before I was able to start messaging her and we started chatting. At her behest, the conversation sexually escalated a bit and then she asked to go to a different app. Apparently we were leaving the bar. So we started messaging on the app and she asked me if I have an IG to see if I have more pictures. My fault, my IG was not private, hers was. We continued messaging on the second app and she sends me a picture of her being bored. She then asked me to send her a picture of me being bored, I consider this fl flirting. We go back and forth until she sends me a picture of her topless. We continue tit for tat until the pictures we are sending our nudes. Then abruptly I get a message that is a compilation of just my photos, which include my nudes, saying that she's going to spread these pics all over the internet and share them with my friends and family. I then quickly remember something I witnessed years ago on television. It was a monologue that David Letterman was giving about being bribed by an anonymous person concerning the sex that he was having with women at work who were not his wife. Long story short, 
After the 10-minute monologue, I could hardly believe what I had witnessed. To me, I witnessed someone wrestling back their power and leaving their adversary with the shame. So that's what I did. I told the person that they could go ahead and release the photos, but to make sure they send them in style and to use a filter to make sure my eyes looked pretty. I then reported the messaging thread to the app support and then blocked that person. I felt no shame or guilt or anything negative regarding this and wanted to share this with your listeners. I'm certain at least one has had this happen to them in some sort of form. But I also wanted to say that these acts are only potentially destabilizing because we have a culture massaged and dripping in Christian hypocrisy where a multi-billion dollar porn industry flourishes. You mean to tell me the only people interested in dirty messaging, porn, erotica, hooking up are heathens or nerds who play fantasy in their basement somewhere? Those are just the people propping up our sexual infrastructure? No. But I will say that I do think we can inoculate ourselves from shame by telling our truths and laying the guilt with the bigoted, hypocritical adversaries who try to sully us by a culture they statistically also participate in. Fuck them. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you so much for sharing. Of course, not everyone is going to be in a position to call a catfishing blackmailer's bluff like you did. But man, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where everyone could? Hi, Dan. I really need your help. I've been in a relationship with a man I really love for the last three years. And he makes me feel safe and loved and cherished. And he's the first person I've ever been in love with and been in a long-term relationship with. I'm 25 and I know I wanna have kids one day around the time probably that I'm 30. And he doesn't think that he wants kids and it's been like something that keeps coming around my head because we both agreed that we kind of think where our relationship is not going to be forever, but we don't want to break up. And we're living together and looking at our lease state as like the time when we'll have to make a decision to stay together another year and then check in again a year later or break things off. I just really am nervous that I'm going to keep staying with him for like one more year and one more year and one more year because I love him and I want to be with him. And I just wish he wanted kids. But you can't go into something like that with a person who is not fully wanting them. I mean, I don't want to do that. And so it's leaving me with this question for you. Like, I know I'm 25 and he's... 27. We're pretty young. And I'm just wondering what you think. Like, are we so young that it's okay for me to keep waiting and like being with him because I love him and I want to be with him? Or should I be like following my head more than my heart and trying to find someone who wants what I want? I'm worried I won't find anyone who loves me the way that he does. I think you're young. You're only 25 years old. Uh, woman's peak fertility between teens and late 20s, but women have babies, uh, healthy babies, well into their 30s, 40s these days. So there's no rush. There's plenty of time. The risk here, and obviously what you're wrestling with, is the outside chance that you may wait and 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 linger in this relationship so long that you kind of run out your own biological clock, but you've got a lot of biological clock 
left to go. You've got a lot of years. You've got a lot of time. <sighs> so you have to ask yourself if all the loving and cherishing going on in this relationship, your first serious relationship, the first loving relationship that you've ever been in, is worth, I guess, the small risk that you may wake up in this relationship at 35 or 37 and find getting pregnant with a new partner or leaving this guy if he still doesn't want kids and getting pregnant on your own to be a lot more difficult than might have been to get pregnant at 27 with him if he would change his mind. Uh, and I don't think you should hold out for him to change his mind or with someone else if you'd left him and gone and found a new partner who loved and cherished you just as much that you felt just as strongly about and who wanted the same things in life that you wanted. Children is right up there with, I think, sexual compatibility and other things that people should prioritize when they're looking at someone as a potential long-term prospect and you're not on the same page about children. Now, you can look at each other and say, okay, well, that means that there is a window where we can be together and love each other, but there is a point at which we're going to have to part. The longer you're together, particularly if your feelings for each other continue to grow, the harder that parting becomes or more inconceivable it can become. And in the end, you may decide to give up on having kids. In the end, he may decide if you threaten to leave him and you're serious about it to consent to having kids to keep you. One of you, if you stay together forever, is going to have to pay the steepest price of admission to have kids or not have kids. You will have to forego children or he will have to agree to have children. And if looking down the road, looking ahead to, to that, not having kids in your case or potentially having kids in his case or having to leave each other after another three years, another 10 years together so that you can go have kids with someone else. If all of that is too horrible to contemplate, yeah, maybe you should break up now. But I wouldn't if I were in your shoes. Break up now over this. I would give it some time. I would give it another couple of years. Your feelings might change about having kids. His feelings might change about not having kids. Or your feelings about him might change. The relationship in a couple of years could run its course and and be wrapping up and it not and, and you guys could break up about something that's not about kids it could be something else that leads to the end of this relationship and hopefully if it ends it'll end in as loving a fashion as it's been conducted so far so yeah give it another another 24 months another two years another two re-uppings of the lease that you share and then see how you're feeling and if you're just as adamant about wanting to have kids and he's just as adamant about not wanting to have kids at that point, maybe you should part. Hi, Dan, early thirties, poly female here on the West coast. And in Kinkland, I identify as female dominant. So about a year ago, I was at a play party and I met a submissive man who knocked my socks off. I was wildly attracted to him. We had incredible chemistry. And so we continued to play together. And over time, we realized that our connection was uh, romantic in addition to kinky. We became partners. And then about four months ago, we became primary partners. But something that's been a challenge in this connection is related to vanilla sex. 
Uh, for me, in addition to a really robust kink dynamic with my partners, I really uh, value vanilla sex. Um, for me, it fulfills this desire to feel desired by my partners, not just for the kinkiness that I can bring to our dynamic, but uh, it makes me feel seen. It makes me feel attractive when someone wants just me through vanilla sex. But that's really hard for my partner. He's not really interested in vanilla sex with me. And um, it's been a struggle. He has vanilla sex with other people. Um, so it's frustrating that uh, we can't do that too. And he's given me various reasons. And about a month ago, after a very frustrating failed attempt um, initiated by me to have vanilla sex, it came out that he is very unattracted to my breasts, and this can make it very hard for him to be turned on during sex, uh, vanilla sex, uh, when I am naked. And um, wow, did this comment send me into a tailspin. I've spent more than half my life struggling with eating disorders, body dysmorphia. This partner knows this. And um Ever since that comment, I have been unable to be naked with him or any other partner, not just during sex, but even uh, just around, you know, taking a shower, going in a hot tub, stuff like that. And frankly, Dan, the idea of ever being naked with a partner uh, during sex right now sounds unfathomable. I feel like I don't want to turn someone off because they think my breasts are unattractive. It's been really, really tough. So my question is twofold. The first is, does this guy, does this connection sound like bad news? Am I trying to make something out of this relationship that he's just unable and in some cases kind of cruel about going about telling me these things? And then also, I would really appreciate any advice that you or your listeners have. How can I regain a sense of body acceptance and confidence? Um, it sounds really daunting to go the rest of my life always wearing a bra during sex or contemplating uh, getting a boob job. So any advice or uh, input you have, I would so very much appreciate. Step one on regaining a sense of body confidence is to break the fuck up with this malicious asshole. What he said was obnoxious and inconsiderate, but not innocently so. What he said was malicious and cruel and intentionally so. He knew about your struggles with body dysmorphia, the eating disorders, and he said this to explain why he's having vanilla sex with other people and not interested in having vanilla sex with you. He targeted a part of your body to explain this? Yeah, no, he's got to go. You have got to break the fuck up with this guy. DTMFA, dump this motherfucker already. Dump the motherfucker yesterday. Then you have to really confront whatever it is in your head that is extrapolating from what he said, which is, I don't like your tits and extrapolating from that to nobody likes my tits. That can't be true. You have had other sexual partners. There must be other partners in your sexual history who loved your tits, who vibed with your tits, who grooved on your tits, who appreciated your tits. Why are you giving so much weight to the asshole thing, this asshole that you're going to break up with said and not giving any weight to all those other people who've loved your body as it is. Why? Well, uh, you know, we tend to blow up the negative, you know, and this isn't just about our bodies, you know, 
you get a hundred positive comments about something you did or a hundred likes on a tweet or, you know, a lot of positive feedback. One person says something negative and that's what you obsess about. I totally get it. I totally understand. But there's some part of your brain that needs to wrestle with that impulse, you know, that giving so much weight to the negative comment that he made. Negative and subjective. He's just talking about him and giving more weight, equal weight to the actions and comments of other people that you've been with who loved your body. He got in between you and your body and has made it difficult for you to love your body right now. Let some other people get in between you and your body, bring you back to your body. And even if you're having a hard time loving your body at this moment, look at the way these other people in your past or hopefully in your future can and do love your body and let those experiences, that pleasure, let those affirmations wash away what this guy said. Your tits aren't ugly. He is ugly. Who he is. He is an ugly, unkind, malicious, cruel person. Your tits, beautiful, attractive. This guy, ugly and repulsive. Step one, get the fuck rid of him. Step two, reason with yourself. Talk to yourself. Let the rational part of your mind assess objectively how attractive your body is. Not to everyone, and no one's body is attractive to everyone, but attractive, objectively attractive, because others have found it attractive. And allow how other people have found you attractive to give you permission to illuminate the path back toward embracing your own body again and finding yourself attractive again and allowing yourself to know that indeed you are attractive and your tits are beautiful and fuck this guy. Please break the fuck up with him right fucking now. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 32-year-old cis woman, poly, pansexual, calling to get some advice from you and your listeners about coping with changes in um, attraction, I guess, after weight gain. I've been married to my wife for four years. I gave birth to our baby almost two years ago. We have two long-term special guest stars with whom we are very close also outside of the bedroom. Uh, one who's been a long-distance partner f- on and off for the last decade, the other who was nearby, present for the birth of our child and all other major life things until my wife and I decided to move from California to Illinois about nine months ago. Over the last two years, I've gained a lot of weight that I do not plan on trying to lose. What I'm up against is the feeling that my partners are no longer attracted to me now that I look different from before. Specifically, our male partner, who became the long-distance partner after the move earlier this year, he's always been attracted to a different type than me. He and my wife have had a relationship for the better part of the last 15 years. They are life partners, so I know he's not going to stop being a part of my life, and I don't plan on asking them to stop having sex if I'm not a part of it. But I'm trying to reckon with the fact that uh, it's not an activity that he seems to be interested in doing with me anymore. You know, I was never really his type to begin with, and especially not now. And that's magnified by our visits being a few days of constant togetherness, followed by many months of distance. So how do people deal with this when one of their partners is no longer attracted to them? Uh, My wife is GGG. She 
listens, she sees me, makes me feel loved and desired. Uh, but I can't help but feel that I deserve an experience of being worshipped and wanted in my new fat body. All three of my partners have some history of their own body image issues, eating disorders, obsessive exercise, etc. Do you think it's possible for them to worship my fatness? How do I bring that out of them? Or do I just need to find my own new special guest star that loves fat ladies? <laughs> Joining me to help tackle this question, Leah Carey, a sex and intimacy coach and host of the podcast, Good Girls Talk About Sex. She helps people identify and advocate for their own sexual pleasure and satisfaction, her superpower, radical empathy. Hey, Leah, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. So this is obviously a very sensitive subject. Especially for those of us who are brought up as little girls who have been given a lifetime of images that we're supposed to live up to. And we can't. Those models don't even exist in real life. They're airbrushed to the maximum degree. And bodies change in Mm long-term relationships, but also desire wanes. Even when people don't get larger or smaller, uh, you know, people's hair falls out or doesn't fall out, oftentimes desire wanes over the decades. But she's pegged the waning of, you know, attraction from, I guess, the secondary tertiary partners to her weight gain. And her question is the one I wanted to ask you about. Can you not force, not coerce, not make, but can you induce a long-term partner to love your fat body, to worship your fat body? Or would she, would be a better use of her time and less frustrating to find new partners who groove on her body as it is now? Yeah, well, I love that, that she asked, should she find her own special guest star? Well, hell yes, she should. (laughs) Um, But that doesn't have to come at the expense of other people. My biggest question for her is, what does she want? Because I hear her talking in her call a lot about what other people think about her. And can she get them to see her the way um, that they used to? But I'm not entirely convinced that she wants this man to see her that way. I only hear her talking about, can I make him see me this way again? So my first question would be, do you even want to continue having sex with this man? And then if you do, what are the conversations you need to have? I hear you, I hear you asking, um, you know, can I get them to worship me? And I personally, I love that language. That's actually something that I ask of my partner. Like, I'm feeling really self-conscious about my stomach right now. Could you just spend a few minutes worshiping my stomach? <laughs> Help me to see it through your eyes. Help me to see it the way that you do. Um, so what does worshiping mean to you? Does it mean cuddling or stroking or saying nice words or grabbing it during sex? You know, figure out what that worshiping looks like for you, what that satisfaction would be. And then you can have that conversation with your partner about, here's something that I would really, this would make me feel really loved. This would make me feel really special. And like, you see me. And hopefully they're able to respond to that kind of languaging and that messaging. But then if they're not, then you have your answer that, no, this is not something that can happen. I often think that one of the dirty little secrets of the sex and relationship advice industrial complex is that we spend a lot of time pretending that desire isn't going to change 
Uh, mm. You know, we at once fan the, you know, embers uh, of those sparks. How do you keep the spark alive? Spend a lot of the time addressing that. But we make people feel like there's something wrong with their relationships if there is less sexual passion or if the sexual connection basically, I, the, the language is just so dark, withers and dies, or <laughs> the relationship changes where sex is less central. I, I don't want to put in the caller's head that because the sexual connection, that wasn't, it doesn't sound like very strong in the first place with the secondary partners, right. uh, that if it goes away, that she has to, you know, throw these people out of her life. There's a lot of people out there in long-term relationships that were very sexually passionate at the start that are now more companionate. There's nothing wrong with those relationships. But to find that kind of, you know, the desire that can be very inspiring, it can really turn people on, but to find that kind of passionate desire for who you are now or where you are now sometimes means finding new people regardless of your size or what changes your bodies have, have undergone over time. Does not, can we, yeah. can we risk being honest about that in the sex and relationship advice industrial complex ever? I love that. <laughs> I guess I think we need more of that. And I also think that, you know, there, this idea of changing bodies and gaining weight is so fraught. And one of the things that she mentioned is that all of her partners have histories of some sort of disordered behavior around food and weight, which means that if they start acting differently toward her body, it may have nothing to do with her body. Mm. And it may be all about what the changes in her body represent to them and their own fears. And that's just not something you're ever going to be able to reckon with. Like that is not yours to reckon with. I remember interviewing when I first started writing Savage Love. This is easily 25, 28, maybe even 30 years ago, maybe in the first year of the column. Uh, I did a column about amputee fetishists, and I spoke to a woman who was an amputee. And, you know, we talked about objectification. We talked about being fetishized. And she said something that I thought was so smart and that was in my column 30 years ago, that she'd rather be desired for who she is than despite who she is. Mm. And I found that yeah. very personally, like that stuck with me because I found that empowering about who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would put my money on, you can't insist that people find you attractive over time or through changes, but you can find people who find you attractive, who are into yeah. you and allow your long-term partners to worship you in the intimate ways long-term partners can that aren't necessarily about sex or eroticism and allow new partners just to groove on the physical object that you are. Mm -hmm. And there are people, no matter your shape or size, there are people who want to love you, worship you, touch you, be with you. Um, that is something that I can, I know it's so hard for people to hear this and I get it because I come from a background of a really poor relationship with my body and a lot of repression. I can guarantee you there are people who want to love you in the body that you're in today. And so help them to find you by, by going out there and being your awesome self. Leah Carey, sex and intimacy coach, host of Good Girls Talk About Sex, a podcast where she interviews everyday people, anyone brought up as a little girl plus trans woman about their sexual histories. A great listen for everybody, but particularly for straight cisgender men who want insight into what their partners want and need. Leah, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. 
Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I am in the middle of my ninth step in a 12-step program where I'm making my amends. And there's somebody who, when I was much younger, I slut-shamed at school, and my sponsor and I have decided that it wouldn't be appropriate for me to make direct amends to this person, but I still want to make amends by donating to some sort of cause that helps educate young girls on slut-shaming. And I was just wondering if you knew of any organization that specifically does this. I've done some Googling, but I haven't found very much. I don't know of any organizations out there working specifically to combat slut shaming. Maybe someone listening knows of one and wants to call in and share. Please do. I will say this though. You can't scratch an anti-choice politician, an anti-abortion law, movement, march, activist without uncovering a whole lot of slut shaming. So if you're looking for a symbolic act of penance to make it up to the universe for the slut shaming you engaged in back in the day, I don't think you could do better than making a donation to the National Network of Abortion Funds. They're at abortionfunds.org. Terry and I have been monthly donors for years, and I invite you to become a monthly donor or make a one-time donation, and not just you, caller, but everyone out there listening as well, abortionfunds.org. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. got? Joining me for this What You Got, James Mackay, Assistant Professor of British and American Literatures at the European University, Cyprus. Hey, James, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, Dan. Thanks for talking to me. So uh, what do you got? What did you just come out with? Okay, so uh, I've just come out with a co-written article on hypnosis and pornography, and it's a cultural history of the uh, two genres and the way that they work together. Hypnosis and pornography? I'm familiar with a kind of little boomlet right now in hypnoporn on Twitter, and I I see it around. Is that what you're looking into, like hypnoporn, or is there some longer association with hypnosis and porn that I'm missing? Okay, so it started off with just coming across these sort of examples of uh, micropornography. I'm not familiar with what you're talking about on Twitter, but it's probably the same thing, uh, which is uh, pornography that's designed to, that's sort of made out of edited together clips of pornography, often with a lot of flashing lights, maybe with um, a sort of spinning disc in the center of it, subliminal text messages, all sorts of things like this. And often, which is designed to supposedly uh, turn the viewer, who is often coded as a straight male, uh, to turn the viewer into uh, a gay man, into a so-called sissy, to turn them trans, uh, or into uh, to do what's called bimboification, turn them into a, a brainless uh, bimbo, um, and turn them bisexual. And then there are other examples that we came across when we started looking at this as well. For instance, uh, we found examples of ones that were uh, race-based, so were either telling the viewer that they needed to worship black bodies or they needed to worship white bodies. Uh, there are ones that feed into the idea of alpha and beta males. So they try and convert the viewer into a dominant alpha male or into a uh, beta male who will um, give into 
anybody who wants to have sex with them. And we found, I mean, various different types and subtypes of that. And looking at these, I was just absolutely fascinated with the question of where do they come from? Why are they so popular at the moment? So we went out and we sort of looked for um, published research on them. And we're kind of shocked to discover that there really has been no discussion of this in the academic porn studies community. So we sort of started looking at that. And then, you know, you said about the, the, the longer history. One of the things that we were interested in is, you know, I mean, first of all, we were interested in this hypnotism. Or is this actually doing this to people? And there's some interesting sort of research on uh, both sides of that. <laughs> wait, wait. My, my hunch is, my hunch is, no. This is people are seeking out uh, hypnosis, hypnosis, bimbo, or sissification porn because they want to be a bimbo or a sissy. They want to transgress against gender norms or expectations, and they need this permission, whether that's you know conscious or subconsciously, whether they're toying with it. This is people looking to be forced to do what they already want to do, or being able to claim that they were forced to do what they already wanted to do. Absolutely. And um, uh, Andrea Long Chu, who's a, a trans writer um, who wrote Females a couple of years ago, is actually a good example of that because she says in uh, one chapter that uh, when she was still living as a cisgender man, she was sneaking off to watch sissy hypno porn. And she actually says it in, in the piece, uh, hypno porn turned me trans. Yikes. Oh my God. If I were, I'm afraid to put that on my podcast, even though a trans woman out there said that about herself for fear that I'll be accused of contributing to the, to the trope that trans mm -hmm. women are, that it's a fetish of straight men to present as a trans woman. And yet that's mm -hmm. some of the porn that you found out there is sort of framing it that way. I think for cisgendered male fetishist consumption, and yet the person you decided. Andrea Long Chu, yeah. Just literally says, yes, this this did this. Now, Andrea Long Chu is a controversial writer at... Uh, I would imagine. Fun, so. So. I've yeah. never heard of her, but I would imagine that she is very controversial. We will handle her with tongs. But I would say, I mean, very definitely, this doesn't seem to me to be a likely scenario that someone has actually been changed. And we, we looked into the, um, you know, the background on how hypnotism works. And it's very clear that it's a, an issue of consensual acts of the imagination, that um, you can't mind control someone in the way of this. In other words, that it's a fantasy, as uh, most pornography uh, is. So, so nobody, nobody has to worry that they're going to stumble over hypnosis, sissification porn on Twitter one day and be instantly struck dumb by the flashing lights and the pornography, and then 10 minutes later be a sissy. That is not a real concern that anyone needs to have. Absolutely not. And actually that speaks to a much sort of darker history, which we only really got to glance at in the article, which is that hypnosis has often been used to try and reprogram people's sexuality, but usually in the other direction. Uh, we're talking about gay conversion programs, mm -hmm. um, which, are, which have gone on and continue to go on in the United States, which have been state-sponsored and I think still are in China, which have been used in, in Russia. And there are various other places where these have been tried, where gay uh, people are forced to undergo hypnosis to try and reprogram them or undergo it voluntarily because given the society uh, in which they live, they want to be programmed out of their desires. And these things just don't work. 
you know um so we we you can say with certainty that someone's not actually going to get rewired and that's with um someone who's maybe qualified as a hypnotist who's doing um you know real hypnotherapy techniques it still doesn't work so you know it's it's much more hardwired into um the 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 person's consciousness subconsciousness their very core of their being than can overcome with a, a bit of fantastic imagination and uh, some words and when hypnosis does appear to work it's usually the subject of the hypnotic session wanting to please the hypnosist mm. wanting or you know in the case of gay people who may be using this or being forced to undergo this as a form of conversion therapy in russia you know a desperate desire to mm. to conform if to the hypnosis to the to the program to the society and so how do you tease out i i mean i just i don't think hypnosis is real i don't think it works i think it's about trying to give someone permission to be or do who you know who they actually are or what they actually want to do but they need an excuse it's like a drink almost like the de-inhibition sorry the disinhibition that people find in alcohol people can also find if you know they mix up hypnosis and sex in, in hypnosis yeah, and yet, of course, it's got this huge power over our imaginations as a culture because you have this image, and this is what we did in the articles. We went back and sort of traced the cultural history, went right back to uh, Franz Mesmer, um, who really originates the idea of hypnotism. And, and you see all the way through hypnotism's relatively short history as a sort of scientific practice. People are always associating with the erotic. And of course, it's, it's exactly that. It's, a, it's a, a fantasy of one sort or another that's being played out. Um, but people give it a lot of power. People believe in hypnotism because you said, you said that hypnotism doesn't work. And, and you know, I've never been hypnotized myself, but I suspect that for some people, they do experience hypnotism as working. It's one of those practices where it's kind of like placebo. It works because of the belief that, that people put into it. Hmm. And so there are, there are a couple of things that we've, we've sort of found as we're going through this. One is that there's now a profession of hypnodom, um, which is professional dominatrixes who will hypnotize their clients and they claim to be able to in induce orgasm in their clients without touching through what is essentially very directed, very heavily entered into fantasy uh, role play uh, entirely through words. So what we sort of see as we look back through history is that uh, as you'd expect, throughout most of cinema's history, particularly because obviously these are video clips we were looking at, you have a concentration on the idea of the image as being something that can take over and can control you. That's why you see in um, early cinema, there's so much concentration on figures like Svengali, like Dr. Mabuse, like Fu Manchu or Dracula or the Bela Lugosi film White Zombie. This idea of taking power over um, a woman and taking her as your sexual slave is, is a huge fantasy in, in early cinema in particular. And then you get towards the mid-century and you get things like Dianetics, which goes on to become Scientology, which is all about programming the brain. You get NLP, neurolinguistic programming, which sort of has a very outdated model of the, the way that the mind works and says you can take control of it. And you've got things like the CIA idea of brainwashing, which mm -hmm. was originally uh, an idea sort of aimed at communist China and saying they're reprogramming our American uh, POWs and then kind of got sucked back into the culture and used against the CIA and say that they're doing brainwashing. But everybody's so invested 
in this idea that you can take over someone else's brain. And what we see with these these videos, these, these micropornographies, is that kind of being weaponized and turned back on the culture. And that, what that I think is what's really interesting about what's happened with it in digital culture. So we went back and we looked at um, uh, video porn from the 90s, film porn from the 70s, um, and then earlier erotic cinema and, and so forth. And we couldn't find any examples of trans fantasies, like none at all. We could find some uh, hypnosis in uh, gay pornography, but nothing on uh, gender play at all. That's what's happened in the modern era is that this new genre of pornography has emerged, which allows viewers who may be through um, being exposed to digital pornography, which has such a variety of body shapes, of genders, of sexual practices, all kind of on display at the same time. So we're all exposed much more than we were before to the realities of other bodies, to the realities of other practices. It allows people to distance themselves and to play with this, to say, okay, I, I am being taken over by this. Film. Right. But this is allowing a certain kind of person to play with this and fantasize about it. You know, the hypnosis porn that's about bimboification or sissification or being hypnotized into identifying as trans, that's not aimed at trans porn consumers. That's not aimed at gay and bi porn mm -hmm. consumers necessarily. It seems like this whole genre that you're looking at, that sort of the modern iteration of erotic hypnosis porn is all kind of aimed at cis straight men and giving them permission mm -hmm to do what they see other people doing in the culture, which is explore or explode their gender mm -hmm. identities and their, their conception of themselves sexually. It's sort of an interesting new variation, but when you look at who this is all aimed at, it's very telling, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Hypnosis is about, you know, someone taking control over you, having power of your brain. Straight men have arguably most of or all of the power, and yet straight men who fantasize about giving up that power they need a permission slip in a way. Yeah. And this porn may represent, you know, for some straight guys who fetishize it, whether they believe in it or not, whether it's just like something they fantasize about and they know it's not real or it's something that they believe in. This is the way, this is how they get to where they see other people allowing themselves to go, which is what put it in their heads in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things that we, looked for and we we found a lot of different sort of like tiny subgenres in, in this but the one thing we absolutely did not find a single example of is hypnotize yourself straight for gay men there's no fantasy there there's no desire there whatsoever because that's something that the entire culture is is pushing as a narrative to uh, gay men turn yourself straight and these there's no need for that there's no there's no yeah cuz most gay there. men who are adult out gay men already tried that yeah. Already tried to force themselves to to live as straight, to be straight, to identify as straight. I certainly did. Most of the gay men I know did. It's really rare to meet a gay man who didn't try this and mm. reject it and so isn't tempted by it. And it, it gives you some sort of interesting questions about the strength that emerges from that, the strength of identity, of, of self-knowledge that emerges from that uh, process that's not present for straight men in the culture that straight men have created. And that's when you get into really big questions about toxic masculinity and its effect on men. It's really interesting because you look at gay men, bi men, gay, lesbian, bi, pan, 
women, trans folks, all of those people have given themselves permission to be who they are, what they are, and left straightness and cisness or both behind and or cisness behind. It's straight guys. I've always felt since I first started writing about sex, straight guys who are more constrained. You know, once you've already transgressed, once you've moved out of straightness or cisness, everything is possible for you. You can give yourself permission to do anything. A straight guy is much more imprisoned by his sexual identity because it's paradoxically far more fragile. Yeah, there's, a, uh, there's another genre um, which we didn't get to discuss in this article, but I'm, I'm sort of trying to approach and write about at the moment, which is on YouTube, there's a whole genre of um, videos which are like pornography without any sexual imagery at all. They're literally just binaural sounds or beats um, being played at a frequency that supposedly, and obviously it's all bullshit, it doesn't actually happen, <laughs> but they're being played. Um, in, uh, they say that what we'll do is we will induce an orgasm in you. And they do this with no imagery, no um, guided meditation, no hypnosis, no induction, nothing at all. It's just a sound that's played that will cr bring you to sexual satisfaction. And I read that absolutely as, um, and I think that these are mostly being made for um, supposedly straight cisgender men. And I think that they are a way of leaving behind the burden. And I, I appreciate that that sounds like white man's burden. And I don't, don't mean that to, to come across in that way. Um, but leave behind the idea of having to live up to an idea of masculinity. But you can walk away completely from that and get to something that, that's pure and abstract in sexuality. So yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that there's a, something that goes on when you have a, a model that's set out for you that you have to follow and you, you have to stick rigidly to, which many closeted uh, gay people are forced into living all the time. But I think that a lot of straight men are also forced into living a lot of the time. I could talk to you all day. This is fascinating stuff. Professor James Mackay, Assistant Professor of British and American Literatures at the European University of Cyprus. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. And where, where can people find the study if they want to read it? Uh, the study's just been published online on the journal Porn Studies. Uh, it's co-authored with Polina Mackay, and the title is Hypnosis and Pornography, A Cultural History. Thank you so much. Dan, thank you. Hi, Dan. Woman in my mid-30s living in Texas. I spent the holidays with my wonderful parents, who I love a lot. We all had a really good time. And so we were hanging out and eating food. And then we had a phone call with my uncle, my mom's brother, and uh, chatting with him and then got off the phone and uh, I was filling them in that when my mom's brother and my mom's other brother died like several years ago at the funeral, the uncle that we had the phone call with like shared with me at a bar afterwards that he and his wife were like getting into like BDSM stuff. And I was like, oh, that's cool and interesting, whatever. And I just happened to bring it up in a way that's like not like spilling tea, just like a, this is a thing that I learned. And my mom was like, oh yeah, not a big deal. And my dad was just like, didn't understand it, asked a lot of questions. I answered a lot of questions very matter-of-factly. And he seemed, like, pretty perturbed. Like, he wasn't even familiar with the term BDSM. He was familiar with S&M, like, they're in their 60s. Um, but so I was just, like, filling him in, like, as, like, an educational moment. And then so I left to go wash my face and came back and listened and eventually eavesdropped to hearing, like, my mom whispering to my dad, like, well, you know that our daughter has, like, been, like, you know, like, has engaged in, like, BDSM stuff and, like, heard my dad say repeatedly, I wish you didn't tell me that, I wish you didn't tell me that, I wish you didn't tell me that. 
And then so like I pretended like nothing happened, hung out with them for a little while longer. We all went to bed. And then I, yeah, this morning my dad left to go work out and I went to confront my mother and I was like, that's fucked up. Like I've told you that stuff in confidence. Like you've been like desperate to hear about my sexual life. Like as long as I've been an adult and like we talk about it very honestly, she's really non-judgmental, but have always known that that's not something that my dad's going to be okay with. Like he's traditional in certain senses and like in problematic in other senses in terms of his understanding of sex and especially like women, single women as sexual beings. Like it's just like, there's some problematic stuff there that I just know he, he doesn't push back on me when I talk about it, but like, I know I'm not going to change his mind, but I feel like she left it in the worst possible place that she brought it up to him in this way that made him super uncomfortable without me there to be able to like explain like what that might look like in a way to like maybe temper his concerns. And now I don't want to bring it up to him. He obviously doesn't want to talk about it, but I feel like it's like left in the worst possible place. So like my inclination is to not bring it up again. And my mom apologized when I confronted her about it today and she said she made a mistake and she just like, you know, kind of felt like he was asking her questions and she felt like she wanted to be honest with her husband and with my father. And I appreciate that. They have a very strong marriage of like 34 years. But I also just like feel really weird now that it's like they said all of that and now like I can like run wild in my head about what my dad is thinking about like me and my like sexuality and my sex life and I kind of want to like educate him. But I don't know. Thoughts? What your mom did was wrong. It was a little fucked up. But I can't help but sit here thinking what you did was wrong. What you did may have been a little fucked up. You raised the subject. You broached the subject at Christmas of BDSM by talking for no apparent reason, apropos of nothing, by raising the subject of your uncle's BDSM practices, of your uncle and aunt engaging in BDSM, and the fact that they had your uncle had at least shared that with you. Why? Why would you go there? Knowing what you know about your dad, knowing your dad wouldn't understand BDSM, that he would call it just SM, which makes him an old, and that your dad wouldn't be able to wrap his head around why anyone would want to do this or why a healthy person might enjoy doing it. You knew that about your dad. That's your concern about your mom talking about your practices, your BDSM practices with your dad. And yet you raised the subject. You brought it up. You talked about his brother-in-law engaging in BDSM. Why? Your dad didn't need to know what your mom told him. Your mom and dad didn't need to know what you told them. And you didn't need to know what your uncle told you. Now, maybe you have the kind of relationship with your uncle where you guys talk about sex. I have many aunts and uncles, but I have one aunt and one uncle where we did talk about sex. We were relatively close in age. They were trusted adults who were not quite our peers when we were kids, but close enough to our age that we felt more comfortable talking with them about sex than we did talking about with our own parents. Um, They answered our questions. I could see being able to have a conversation with that aunt or that uncle about their sex life at a funeral. I could see that aunt or that uncle sharing that with me or me sharing with that aunt or uncle something I'm into. So I don't necessarily think that your uncle did anything wrong, but I'm sorry. I kind of really do think you did something wrong when you told your mom and dad that your uncle's into BDSM. Was that something your uncle would have been comfortable with? Did your uncle tell you when he shared that with you that you could share it with anybody you liked, including 
his sister and brother-in-law? Uh, maybe he did. Maybe he doesn't care. Who knows? Maybe he's really out about it. And maybe there was some prompt. Maybe there was a moment you and mom and dad are watching TV and there was, maybe you're watching billions and S and M came up and it was a legitimate place for the conversation to go. But based on what you've shared with me, it's just really hard not to conclude that for no reason at all, you brought up BDSM and your uncle and maybe your dad later asked your mom why you brought that up. And your mom was like, well, you know, she's into it too. Maybe it was her way of broaching the subject, wanting to raise the subject with you. I don't know what your mom was thinking. All that's water under the bridge. All that's floggers in a drawer. What do you do now? I don't think you say nothing to your dad. I think you call dad or you send dad a note that just says, oh, hey, sorry, mom shared that with you. You didn't need to know that. I'm perfectly fine. I'm perfectly safe. It's perfectly healthy. I'm not in any danger. And let's just stuff this down the memory hole. But if you have any questions or, you know, you have anxieties you need me to lay to rest, we can talk about it. Hopefully your dad will say that he, you don't need to talk about it and you'll be off the hook. But I think you're going to have to say something to your dad about what your mom said to your dad which your mom said to your dad after you said to your dad and your mom, what your uncle said to you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old cis het gal living in the UK, and I have a weird question about myself. After I have sex with someone for the first time, I always end up with these really strange flashbacks. The day after, or even a couple days after, I'll suddenly have this like memory of a moment during sex and then I'll experience extreme repulsion throughout my body and I'll have to like shut my eyes and essentially just shake it off. I mentioned this to a friend of mine recently and she thought it might be because I felt manipulated or coerced by the guy but in every circumstance that I remember this happening in it's been with guys who I feel really comfortable with and who I want to sleep with. I'm initiating, I'm interested I want to do this. Is this something that you've heard of before? I feel pretty much insane. I haven't heard of this before. Well, I mean, of course, I have heard of this before. People will sometimes do something during sex that then they'll think about later and feel deep shame about, you know, I know lots of guys who before they came out would have gay sex, be very into it in the moment, and then be disgusted by it and disgusted with themselves when they thought about it later or were reminded of it later. You're straight. You're not being coerced or manipulated into doing anything in the moment that you don't want to do. So what's different in the moment? Well, in the moment, just like those closeted guys, I remember from back in the day when I was sleeping with closeted guys, in the moment you're aroused. And later when you recall something that went down or you flash on a particular moment, you're not in a state of arousal. There's been a lot written about the line between, you know, arousal and disgust and how so many of the things that we do during sex, if we just thought of them sort of walled off from desire, how kind of gross they would be. If it's really a problem, I would recommend going in for a little cognitive behavioral therapy. If these are unwelcome, intrusive thoughts, if after having sex for days or weeks, you flash on these moments and you are disgusted 
by the memories, something to unpack with a cognitive behavioral therapist who can help you get a grip on those kinds of unwelcome thoughts. But maybe just understanding the difference that arousal made in the moment and reminding yourself when you have these thoughts and you are disgusted by them, that you were aroused. And so something that, you know, when you're not in a state of arousal and apparently not able to recall your state of arousal would disgust you, like eating someone's ass or sucking someone's dick or drinking a gallon of their spit during a heavy makeout session, you did those things. When you were aroused, when you were turned on, did things that absent arousal and the turn on, you might find or are finding in those moments disgusting. So you just need to get in front of that. You need to argue with yourself. You need to interfere with your own thought processes that are getting you to a place of disgust before you have a chance to remind yourself that, hey, that turned you on. You were turned on in that moment. So maybe if you can rush in when you flash on a moment from sex, disconnected from arousal and desire, if you can rush in and remind yourself of the context of arousal and desire, you'll be less disgusted. And if that doesn't work, cognitive behavioral therapy. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Jessica Statler tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage, your rewrite of Single All the Way would be amazing, as you mentioned at the top of the Savage Lovecast last week. That is some content I would be all over. Let's gay it up on TV and show how great non-monogamous relationships can be. Mavis Beacon tweets to Dan Savage and Savage Lovecast listeners, asking for a friend, is it creepy or creative to invite a long-distance flirtation to send you a clone of willy so you can enjoy them anytime you want? Well, I think that would depend on the kind of relationship you have with your long-distance flirtation. What's creepy to one person might be just what somebody else was dying to be asked. I would err on the side of giving it a shot. And finally, Maggie Marigold tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage, when did you start doing the Magnum Savage Lovecast? I want to go back and listen with my new Magnum subscription to everything I missed the first time around. The Magnums start in April of 2013. Thank you for subscribing, Maggie, and enjoy. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And big thanks to everybody out there who tweeted about the show or posted your Instagram story about the show or Facebook about the show last week. We really appreciate how you guys get the word out about the Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hey, this is in response to episode 792, the two callers who called in um, regarding surviving emotional abuse. Dan, I thought your advice was really good. I also just wanted to say a few additional things. First of all, to the two people who called in, congratulations for recognizing what was going on, knowing that you needed and deserved a better situation. It can be really hard to recognize, especially the more kind of insidious, less obvious emotional abuse um, as opposed to physical abuse even though physical abuse is also really hard to get out of too. For the first caller, I wanted to just highlight a resource that really helped me in getting out of an emotionally abusive relationship. It's a book called Why Does He Do That? And one of the main takeaways there is that men who abuse or, or people who abuse really just don't change. So don't have hope for that. Just take care of yourself. And for the second caller, I just wanted to highlight 
that they should think about having a safe exit plan. It sounds like there hadn't been physical abuse, but just in case, it's always good to call a domestic violence resource hotline just to make sure that you have a safe plan before blowing the relationship up, which you absolutely should do. I have a lot of hope for both of you and hope you are well. Hey, Dan, I'm a 32-year-old male. And I'm a 30-year-old woman. And we're calling you from Seattle to say thanks for all of your advice over the last several years that we've been listening to your show. We met on a dating app about four hours after I got dumped by my long-term girlfriend. And I was bored living in my parents' driveway in my van. We met, and after a beer or five, we went home together and then feigned indifference for several weeks after that. Fast forward to now, we're in a happy open relationship, and we're getting married today. Thanks for all of your advice and cheers to the motto that the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else. Hey, Dan, I am calling in response to episode 792, the caller who is a trans guy living in Philly. This is a long shot caller, but I am also a trans masculine person living in Philly and having a hard time out there on the apps and looking to date another trans masculine person. I also got top surgery in the past year. And if you're interested, um, my suggestion would be to post a misconnection on the app Lex and I'll find you there and maybe we could grab a coffee. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about something I said on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone, record your question or your comment, and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We do prefer those voice memos. They have better sound quality, but we love your calls, however you choose to get them to us. This Thursday, January 6th, I will be hosting a special evening edition of Sack Lunch. That's our monthly hangout for Magnum Lovecast subscribers. We'll be playing games and having a few cocktails. I guess we're playing something called Quiplash. It's a game where the funniest answer wins and the winners get prizes. We're calling this edition of Sack Lunch Happy Sack. Take note of the special time, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Get your drinks ready this Thursday and join me for some hopefully raunchy fun. Speaking of raunchy fun, New Year, New Hump Film Festival tickets on sale now for the opening Hump Festivals in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Olympia with all new brand spank and new porn flicks. And every purchase of a Hump ticket comes with a free one-month Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast. So go to humpfilmfest.com, grab your Hump tickets, and get your Magnum sub too. And then join us for Happy Sack on Thursday. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow James McKay on Twitter at James McKay CYP and follow Leah Carey on Instagram at Good Girls Talk. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.